Hi, I'm Daryl Urbanski, and welcome to the Best Business Podcast. My mission is to help create 200 new multimillionaire business owners. How? You'll do better when you know better. In my interviews, you'll hear from self-made millionaires, seven-figure business owners, authors, and world-class experts sharing how they did it so you can too without experiencing the same obstacles they did. When your life and your business grow as a result of what you're about to discover, please call me and tell me about it. The number to leave a voicemail is 1-888-844-GROW. That's 1-888-844-4769. Long-distance charges may apply. Dial now to call me, connect, share your personal story of how my interviews have helped, or share your current challenges and frustrations so I can connect you with an appropriate course, coach, or help you if you connect. Now, if you like this interview, please share it with a friend you think will benefit. They'll appreciate it, and I will as well. You can also connect with me on social media. Look for Daryl Urbanski, D-A-R-Y-L, Urban Ski, U-R-B-A-N-S-K-I, and add me so we can be friends. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy what I've prepared for you right here, right now. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl Urbanski, your host as always. And today we're talking with Micah Frame, founder and owner of an accounting firm that focuses exclusively on online businesses. Micah has also written the two best-selling tax books on Amazon, which have sold tens of thousands of copies. His clients are typically six- and seven-figure online businesses and have millions of YouTube and Facebook subscribers between them. A couple of his clients include Adam Lincolnauger from Authority Online, Rocky Ula from I Love Basketball TV, Justin Willman from Ultimate Baseball Training, and many more. Micah's advice has been featured in Time, Forbes, NASDAQ, and quite a few other major publications. I've asked him to join us here today to talk about the difference between online and offline business accounting and what we should all prepare for in the coming future. So Micah, thank you so much for joining us, my friend. I love Micah. Every Micah I've met has actually become a good friend of mine. I haven't told you that before. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Just guys with Micah and I get along great. So it's an honor, pleasure to have you here. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing great, man. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, it's good. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. So before we get into the online business component, I always like to start with people's kind of origin story. And How did you get into business and accounting and entrepreneurship? Like, Do you, do you come from a family of accountants and, and entrepreneurs, or is this a new like foray for the family, the bloodline, or what? No, I'm I'm the only one. My dad's a financial advisor, so I always grew up around some sort of money philosophy and learning from him. Mm. Ended up going to school for business. Just on accident, ended up liking accounting, so majored in it. <laughs> Never planned on being an entrepreneur, though. I'd seen uh, the dot-com bubble. I'd seen the crash of 2008, and my dad having to scramble and deal with the stress of that mm. so I initially just wanted what I felt like and I put this in air quotes but you know the security of just having a job at a big firm mm. so I went to work at a fortune 500 company as a financial analyst business analyst for them hated every second of it so lasted there about three years I want to say and then just had had to leave and said, I don't, I don't care if I make minimum wage, I'm doing something on my own. I don't care if I just am barely able to, to subsist on ramen, but I'm going to be my own <laughs> boss from here on out. That's so funny because uh, a few of the guests and I on the show, we have the saying roof and ramen, that in the early days, it's just about keeping a roof over your head right. and enough hot noodle soup that you don't die. Like That's really, that's, really mm-hmm. that's about it. The the that's right. So then what happened? 
So it took off pretty well. It, I think I'm benefited by the fact that most accountants, one, are not particularly personable, and two, are really bad marketers. Mm. So we built up a niche, start out locally because it's just it's easier to market to, and mm. focused on small business owners here in our area. Mm. And that ended up going well, and by accident, I ended up picking up a couple pretty big online clients mm. and then it worked out well with them they they liked working with me so then when they're talking to their friends they w would refer to me and what I heard consistently and I didn't we started marketing towards this maybe I don't know a year or two ago I should have done it earlier but what we heard from almost every one of them was I'm so glad to talk to you because you actually understand what my business is. You actually understand what I do. Mm. And that's the hole that we've found with CPAs in general is that they can be really good at tax. A lot of them aren't great at business. That's sort of a different discussion altogether, but a lot of them don't give particularly good business advice. But even the ones who understood the tax did not understand taxes and just the way that online businesses operate in general. It would be some 80-year-old guy in an office, and he says, oh, so you make money on the internet. And you know, because he didn't understand what the person was selling, how they operated, he couldn't give them any sort of real advice on how to manage things. Hmm. So can you give us an example of like an uh, online business-specific issue? I think this is a great because it really helps highlight the difference. Like, you know, if you're used to a local business, even a nationwide business, if it's not online, it's still, it functions differently. Like, again, mm -hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not a tax accountant, but even a nationwide brand still probably has local locations that have, right. to, you know, have, to, have to deal with local bylaws and tax laws and all that. But as an online business, there's a lot, like anybody from anywhere can stumble along to your website and punch in a credit card. And they could be from Uzbekistan yeah. or who knows where, from Great Britain. You're kind of open to anybody and everybody. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, 100%, which brings with it one of the reasons that I do this, one of the reasons that excites me is I like working with people who are successful and are going to be successful. And that's not to say that local businesses can't be successful and you can't make a lot of money doing that, but even though I think building a business locally is easier, it's also it's got a higher risk and a higher reward if you do it online. Mm. Online businesses, the ceiling is almost infinite on what you can accomplish. It's just a lot steeper and more difficult climb to get there. There's a lot more chance for failure. But if you do it right, there's really no limit to how much you can make and how much you can accomplish, which is always a lot more exciting versus someone who's got a, a small little business that they're going to turn out a living of 50 grand a year. Yeah. Nothing in the world wrong with that. There are plenty of people who would love to be doing that, but consistency can also be a little bit boring, which yep. I don't find online to be consistent or boring most of the time. <laughs> No, it changes way too fast. I love this. And here's a perfect example of Netflix versus Blockbuster. So, yeah. you know, the model is really direct mail model. Like anybody that's new to the online world, and even those that are maybe 
not necessarily new, but have never really thought about it. Online just models the offline world. And, and the offline world, the pre-internet was, it was mail. It was mail order, mail order catalogs. Those were the old school drop shipping e-commerce stores, right? Like all mm -hmm. the sort of stuff, mail order coaching and consulting, those were the info products. The Tony Robbins, right? The Awaken the Giant right. Within book and all this stuff. It was all the same stuff. It was just done through the mail versus the internet. And if you look at Netflix versus Blockbuster, Netflix originally started by shipping out video cassette tapes, right? VHS tapes mm -hmm. to people. They had a catalog. It was like Blockbuster, but because they didn't have all the overhead of all the staff and all the locations, I think it's something like Netflix is 40 times more profitable with something like 20 times less staff than Blockbuster was. Oh, Just as an example okay. of like what's possible. Yeah, 100%. And people, so I think online has the potential. I've talked to some of my online clients about this. It has the potential, if people aren't careful, for it to start becoming the next multi-level marketing, not because online isn't legitimate, but because there are these people who they look at the success of the top performers and they think it's easy, so everyone all of a sudden buys a $50 course mm. and then presents themselves as a business coach and they have, or running Facebook ads or whatever, and they've got no idea how they're doing it. So you just get inundated with all these bad actors. But... For the high performers, for the ones who actually do well, info products are a great example. That's where my first online client, that's what largely what they do and is where he started out. It's hard to get the audience. It's hard to market to them well. It's hard to build engagement. It's hard to do all the many things it takes to be successful. But then every product you sell, once it's made, market everything, aside from the ad spend, you're getting 99 cents back for every dollar they spend with you. There's no overhead. So if you can do the tough part of getting the audience, just your potential for profitability is borderline way infinite. Higher. Way, way higher. Yeah. What are some of the biggest challenges that you see your clients face? When they get to me, because we're a higher ticket product, this is, a specialty that I've only seen maybe five or ten other accountants who are claiming that they do what we do. So there aren't a lot of us, so it's kind of a little specific niche. So we charge a higher amount, so by the time they get to us, they're usually six or seven figures. So the ones that we deal with, they've mastered the lead gen side. Otherwise, they wouldn't be talking to me. But even though you don't have a lot of costs, you do have ebbs and flows in your cash flow. And that just depends, and it depends what challenges you have depend a little bit on what your product model is. Because if you just have a subscription-based model, then the more subscribers that you get, it's, you know, it's a little bit more linear, right? So you get more subscribers and they're paying you 10, 20, 50, 100 bucks a month, whatever it is, and that just goes up. But if you do what a lot of people do and you've got product launches to where you're going to have, have it to where you get these big bumps and then it kind of tapers off and you get sort of a, a baseline for what that will sell with minimal effort, right. the product launches, you've got a lot of costs associated with getting those off the ground. 
so you've got to eat it for a couple months leading up to launching the product, then you get this huge influx of money that then, like I said, it tapers off. So managing that isn't crazy difficult. It's just you have to plan for it because it's sort of like we deal with tax season. I make 70% of my money in four months out of the year. So we get this big surplus and this nest egg, but we know that we're going to be losing money or having negative cash flow for quite a few months during the rest of the Mm. year. Mm. I love that. So you're talking about the seasonality of the business. So depending on the online client and depending on their business model, they might have massive seasonality, whether they do a launch once, twice a year, maybe even three times a year, or try to do more. But that creates these feast and famine modes. And so Mm -hmm. that's not foreign to offline businesses. That's like an online business luxury, I feel like, where people can have that. I know offline business is a great tool for people. If you're curious about the seasonality of your business just in general, you can actually go to Google Trends, trends trends.google.com, and you can put in your keywords for your industry, and you can see the search results trend volumes. You can go worldwide and you can go back to 2004. And what that shows you is a year over year kind of depending on the niche, depending on whatever, but the trends. When people are looking for it, when interest has has fallen off. And actually, it's funny, if you do the same with Bitcoin and you match that over the Bitcoin stock price, they match up as well, the Google Trends. So you can see the patterns of where anytime the Bitcoin's been searched for a lot on the Internet. And I think it follows that marketing model, AIDA, attention, interest, desire, action. If there's a lot of attention and interest in a topic, there's probably a lot sure. of money being exchanged around that as well. So, But seasonality is a real thing, right? I mean, if you're a snowplow driver or if you're uh, a roofer, right, you can't be roofing in the wet season or the winter season. So, okay, so but online it's – some of these aren't necessarily dictated by the market. Some of these are dictated by the business. It sounds right. Like. And, and people don't. I mean, yeah. yeah. And we run into the same thing with our e-com guys, most of which are Amazon sellers because Amazon just dominates yeah. e-commerce at this point. But right. they have the same thing. They've got their re- they buy usually it's an Amazon training course. So then they go. They've got the outflow for that. They've got the ongoing mentorship. Then you've got research for the product. You get your samples. You order your mi- the minimum quantity you possibly can. You test it. You launch it. And so you've got the outflows. Then you get sort of a baseline. You get bumps during Prime Day, Black Friday, Christmas shopping, all of that. It's the same thing. You've got seasonality with a lot of e-commerce businesses and the outflows of your R&D and other sorts of development. And then e-com guys specifically, their stuff is a big pain because they're shipping usually at least across the U.S., if not the entire world. Mm-hmm. So then you've got a lot of a lot of international, not only statewide and across different states with sales tax and what they call nexus and where you might have a business presence depending on mm-hmm. where you're shipping and where you're located. But you can also end up with international international tax issues, which is a whole lot of fun to deal with if you're a little mom and pop business where you, you're just starting out because you bought a training course for 50 bucks somewhere and they told you you're going to get rich quick. Right, right, right. So how do we navigate this? Like, what do we need to be aware of? Because there's a lot of people that are, you know, they're engaged in online business and they just, they just either can't 
like they've gone to try to talk to their tax office and the tax office didn't know how to handle their type of business or you know or they are doing business across a lot of different borders and they're just kind of waiting for I guess the axe to drop or something like you know like how, right. do, how do people handle that like what what do we do well I've got the U.S. down, and I work with a really great accountant, and this is, again, I'm going to e-commerce, but I work with a really great accountant in the U.K., who he's got all of Europe on lockdown, because in Europe, in the U.S., we have sales tax, so each state can charge their own sales tax, and recent, not even recent, it's been going on for years now, but even if you are not physically located in a state, if you're shipping to a state, you generate what's called economic nexus, where the state has the legal right to charge you the sales tax because you're selling to the populace in that state. Mm. In Europe, you end up with the value-added tax or the VAT tax. And I'm not going to speak to the intricacies of that because I don't claim to understand or be an expert in it but the same as you do in the states if you structure your corporation correctly if you're careful on where you're incorporating how you're doing everything your VAT obligation can change from one country to 50 countries or however many are in Europe it's not Probably should have looked that up before I said that. But, you know, it, instead of it being every single country that you might have customers in, you can limit it to pretty much the U.K. because mm-hmm. of the trade agreements that, are, that the U.K. has with, or that they have right now. We'll see what happens with Brexit. But that they have with the EU versus mm-hmm. if you were just selling into Europe with your U.S. LLC or your U.S. corporation – you could very easily end up with a tax obligation in every single European country you sell into. Wow. So that's just, that's just one example, but it goes to working with people who are true experts in whatever area you need help with. And that's not always cheap, so that's not always the easiest thing to do for a smaller business, but... Unfortunately, especially as it relates to legal and tax-related stuff, the consequences of not getting the right advice can be pretty catastrophic. Right, right, and right. It's not, yeah. it's, not, it's not catastrophic, even just more than the advice would have cost you. I was talking to one guy. I can't remember where he was from, but he was, just, he was an internet marketer. He just built funnels. And because he had customers in the U.S., he had a U.S. accountant tell him he needed to set up a corporation and that he owed tax on any of the revenue he got from the U.S. customers. Didn't right. ship a product there, Didn't never set, set foot there, never traveled there. And so he was going to end up with two to five grand every single year because this dude had no idea what he was talking about. Wow. So what do people do? What's the solution? How do people approach this? Because a lot of people in the beginning, they're just – Especially in the beginning, like at what point, like, I mean, maybe you might be biased, but at what point, what income level do people have to start? Like, you know what I mean? Like, maybe in the beginning, yeah. you should focus first on just getting sales and staying afloat. Right. But when does that switch to now you need to go and take care of your due diligence and these things before they become a problem? 
there's no one answer to it. It's it's like anything else. So you look at your risk exposure relative to the cost. So when you're just starting out, right or wrong, if you're shipping a little bit into a state, if you're doing e-commerce or you're working with, you're doing consulting or info products, and you don't have everything buttoned up to a T, when you're tiny, the chances of people noticing that are dramatically reduced, right? Mm-hmm. You're not even a blip on their radar. And that, that's not right. true for everything. There, there are certain things that are automatic. If you set up a corporation and you don't file a corporate return, the IRS has systems where it automatically flags that and is going to penalize you. But for stuff like sales tax, realistically, when you are selling into a the official advice, obviously, is that when you're selling into a state and there are certain thresholds for sales when you need to register and do that, yeah, you should do that. But the chances of the states noticing if you have these de minimis amounts that you're shipping into them and you're doing it every six months or 12 months or whatever, they'll have the right to penalize you, but the chance of them noticing is smaller. And because your sales into that state are so small, most of the penalties in those cases are based on what the tax you should have collected and remitted in the first place. Mm. So when you're tiny, your risk overall, one of them noticing, and two, if they did notice, it's just smaller. So there's no one answer because you every activity has a different sort of tolerance for when when you're going to get noticed and how bad you're going to get kicked in the balls when they do. But the bigger you get, you it just starts to make more and more sense. Right. So once right. you get at some point. once you get rolling and once it once you've got really once you have proof of concept of your business model, that's when it starts to make sense to take the hit and, and start to get good advice. Even though so, it, it hurts but once you can, you're surviving and you know that this is actually going to survive, your, the business is going to go on in perpetuity. It's not just something you were doing for three months and got tired of or nobody wanted to buy. Hmm. Then it's usually kind of time to pull the trigger. Right, 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 right. So, yeah, because I, I actually have clients that I've worked with that they didn't, you know, they flew under the radar for years, and then they started doing, they had a couple of years where they did over a million dollars, and suddenly mm-hmm. every every stone gets unturned. Like, suddenly they right. became big enough. <laughs> suddenly they became big enough that it, it all became worth digging into, right? Because there's enough, mm-hmm. you know, a million dollars might not sound like a lot to some people, but it's still a lot of money. And so yeah. uh, what, are, what are some basic processes? Say we're someone that is in that space. They were a mom and pop. Now they're doing some big numbers in sales. What, like, do they start off with getting a bookkeeper? Like, wh- how do you enter the zone? Are there certain reports they need to be getting on a regular basis? You know, because a lot of people don't go to school for accounting. So sure. you give kind of like a dummy crash course 101. They, they're where you said. You just said, okay, I proved my concept. Now I'm generating enough money. I'm concerned about this tax thing. I've never really done or taken care of my taxes in the past. What's yeah. state, step one, step two, step three, step four? Meeting with, and again, I'm biased because this is where I come in, but meeting with an account who understands your space 
even just having a consultation with them, that's going to be where you want to start because we're not lawyers, we're not experts in every, th- every little thing, but we do have enough of a broad, if not shallow, understanding of a lot of stuff in business to where we can say, okay, it's, time, it's probably time for you to get set up as an LLC. You want to be taxed at this sort of corporation or that sort of corporation. We'll set your salary level at this. You know, give some just real baseline information, a rough plan for you in the hour or two that you meet with them. Then from there, if you're to where you're not making crazy money, but like we said, you're surviving, you know it's going to keep going. One thing I do recommend is people will try to keep their books, if they keep their books at all. A lot of people just tabulate everything at the end of the year, which is a horrible idea, not only because it's got a chance for error, but because you're not getting those reports and you're not getting the information on how your business is performing throughout the year. But don't use spreadsheets. Even though a spreadsheet can work, what ends up happening is there's no checks and balances on that. The spreadsheet is limited to you keying in the numbers correctly. And we know this because the firm, we do over a 1,000 returns a year. We'll be asking people all the time, hey, you didn't have this expense or this expense looks low. This changed a lot from the previous year. Tell me what's going on. And it's because they paid for it on a different credit card or they, you know, they forgot to log it in the spreadsheet Mm. versus if they used even something basic like a QuickBooks Online or a Xero or QuickBooks whatever that has a basic bank register function and a reconciliation function, you would notice that because your bank balance would be way off. So step one, it sounds like is meet with an accountant, not a bookkeeper, but get, meet with an actual accountant first to discuss your business and the ins and outs and, you know, and figure out if you need to be, you know, set up as a corporation and, right, and that sort of thing. And then at that point, it sounds like get working with some sort of software. Don't leave it to yeah, spreadsheets. And, and, and we refer to bookkeepers box. all the time. If people don't want to book, do the books themselves, that's totally fine. We've got bookkeepers we work with a lot. But, yeah, just having a software bookkeeper, something to where you're getting real-time reports and there's some checks and balances associated with it. Okay. So then what? So, all right. So now we've gotten an accountant. We've set up our company. We've got a bookkeeper who's making sure things are logging properly and getting reconsolidated. reconsolidated. Now what's the next step? What happens next? Next step is simple, and this sounds like actually read your freaking reports. Because that's the other thing that we'll run into is clients who are doing their own books, or they have a bookkeeper who doesn't have, they're not, they're really low cost, they don't have any sort of real accounting or tax knowledge. Is you can tell that they're plugging everything into the software, but they've never pulled a profit and loss statement or balance sheet or a cash budget or anything the entire time. You know, they're, 
and which is really shortchanging themselves because you're doing all of the work or you're paying for the cost of someone else to do the work for you and you're not really getting any of the benefit of it mm. because these reports are the reality of how your business is performing. They're telling you the, the good, the bad, where there are opportunities, where there are areas for improvement. And so, can you give a little demo tutorial for people that um, what are they looking for in each of these? I mean, I, yeah. well, I, I'm not an accountant, so I could probably definitely use a brush up too. But just what is each one for and what are the key things that they should be looking at in your point of, in your, your experience? Well, yeah, a profit and loss is just a basic income statement. So that's showing you what your revenue is, and then it's categorizing your expenses for you. So how much am I spending on advertising? How much am I spending on supplies, payroll, rent, whatever? And what we like to do, this usually isn't super necessary early on in a business, but what we also like to do is have people assign classes or assign costs and revenues to specific customers or types of jobs or locations. It depends on what the business is because then you can pull these reports not only by, okay, I spent this much on advertising or I billed out this much this month, but then you can say, okay, uh, let's say you're in construction is a, a good example. You can, if you're a contractor, you can say, okay, well, I build out a, a hundred grand, and but of that, twenty-five grand was doing decks, ten grand was installing windows, thirty grand was doing bathroom remodels, et cetera, et cetera. And then you can also assign for every expense you have, for every transaction where you swipe a card or write a check you can then assign that to to those same types of jobs. So, all right, I spent this much on the labor and the materials doing decks and windows and all that. And what that can show you is not only, okay, at the end of the month, I had this much profit left over, but it's also showing you the subsets of your business where things are going well and where things are going poorly. Because I've right. had... I've had customers before where they think, oh, yeah, I'm just crushing it with window installation or whatever. And then when we actually get them to do this, we discover, yeah, it's great because you're getting a lot of revenue from that, but your margins are trash. Same thing with certain customers. Their biggest customers a lot of times will be the ones with the worst margin or the most time-consuming. So... That's what we look at for P&Ls, sort of profit and loss. But you sort of get as much out of it as you're going to program into it on the front end. Yeah, no, that's great. So that's, okay. like, that's, like, that's like being able to say that you did an event and, and you're just itemizing the different activities of the business. So first, at the yeah. top level, it's just an income statement. It's categorized income came from these line items and expenses were these line items. But if you do it well and you have more granular detail, you can dive in and actually analyze client by client and or even events. Maybe you did a big an event or you went to a trade show and you noticed that this trade show cost X dollars, 
but you made all this other money as a result of clients that all apparently came from that trade show. It helps you see relationships between things, I think is what you're saying. Exactly. So what needs to happen is that you don't necessarily know what you're looking for even because it's not about predetermined. No. It's not a predetermined fate thing. It's a, it's a thing about almost like Sudoku where you're sitting there and you're looking at the numbers and things jump out at you. Relationships of things match up. You start, start getting insights on your business that nobody could really tell you other than the numbers. And that's the real benefit, at least in this. And so you're saying that some of that will help you identify profitability of certain activities or customers. And again, just show you the reality of the scenario that you might have done a lot in sales, but how much did you keep at the end of the day? And that's the big thing in businesses. It's not what you make, it's what you keep. And so the pr profit right. and loss, it sounds like, is the one that you look at to determine that kind of information. Is that accurate? Yeah, and that's, yeah exactly. That's the biggest one because that's showing the money you're making. The other reports are su are super valuable because a balance sheet, that's going to show us your assets and your liabilities. So that's going to see how much cash reserves you have, how quickly you're burning through inventory. It's going to show you if you're over leveraged and you've got too much debt. But the balance sheet is sort of a, largely, is a symptom of what's happening on your profit and loss statement. Mm, mm, mm. So and you need to be aware of things at, like dead inventory on a balance sheet. It may show up as an asset. Right. Dead inventory is actually just like it's like water damage in your house. It could be a nightmare waiting to explode on you sometime, and you just got to oh, really yeah, crash. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I just want to put that in there because there's been a lot of retail stores going belly up all out of nowhere, and it's because they've had all these assets as inventory listed as an asset, where all of a sudden they're like actually. It's dead inventory, and it's it's just it's weighing us down. Yeah, and we, we've got to mark this down ninety percent to offload it. Yeah, and then oh. they start going, "That's not an asset." This, you know. Yeah, and that's so, one of the things where we work with our Amazon sellers a lot is making sure that, especially early on, at the sample size, we try and get them to be as aggressive as humanly possible with their suppliers. Then the initial order is keep as much as makes sense, but try to have the minimum level possible because you don't know what can change. All of a yeah. sudden, another competitor comes in and somehow starts undercutting you, and then you're either holding on to it or you got to drop your price and you sell it for a loss. Consumer ch taste change. A million different things that happen that that inventory that you had that you spent money on and theoretically as an asset all of a sudden is worth half or sometimes it's just not worth anything because nobody wants to buy it anymore. Mm -hmm. you're, if you're sitting on a bunch of, I guess people still use micro USBs a little bit, but if you had a mini USB or you know the old generation iPhone charger or whatever, yeah. cool, those things, are, those things will sell like hotcakes until the next model comes out and then you're sitting on 100,000 of these stupid things and no one in the world will buy them because there's no device that works with them anymore. Yeah, it's like a fax machine. Like they're just, you know, you, right. you wouldn't want to be the first one to buy a fax machine and you definitely wouldn't want an inventory full of them these days. Right. Right? Like, so you got to be careful. Yeah. Timing, difference between salad and garbage is timing and same thing in mm -hmm. business stuff. But all right, so the balance sheet is where these kinds of things live. It's a snapshot. It's the weighing of things. It, it should balance out, meaning that everything should kind of be equal in the balance sheet. It's showing are you asset heavy or liability heavy. And over time, yeah. I think you can start to see the transition period. 
is that the benefit of the balance sheet is kind of looking at them over time, like at intervals, and being able to see how the how everything's it's lining a, up? It's a big part of it, for sure, because the balance sheet is, by definition, cumulative over time uh-huh. versus a profit and loss is period-specific, so it resets every year at least. The balance sheet, what that changes over time and everything that you've done on the profit and loss carries over to the balance sheet and stays there. Uh-huh. So that's one of the big benefits. Another smaller one that people don't think about is that a profit and loss can look really clean, but about 90% of the time that we see something and realize it's wrong is pretty obvious things on the balance sheet with things being in the negative or being out of balance or being just at a level that realistically doesn't make any sense. And, you know, like a basic example would be if you've got a liability account that's in the negative. Well, that means okay. that they forgot, they forgot to book the liability when they incurred it. And usually that will mean a lot of times that it's going to be that you bought an asset with it. You bought a truck or you bought a piece of equipment. So we're also missing the piece of equipment or whatever you spent the money on elsewhere mm. within your financials. Mm. So if the balance sheet looks, you can always have mistakes, but if the balance sheet has a, looks relatively sane, that's usually a better indication that the books are being done well. And it's, it's harder to, to hide the errors on the balance sheet because it is cumulative and everything you've ever done on the books reflects on there ultimately. Mm, got it, got it, got it, got it. So the last one's the cash flow statement. So what is this, what are we looking yeah. for on this one? Yeah, cash flow statements, it, it drives me a little bit nuts because I wish that softwares had what you call a cash budget, but hardly any of them do. And that's where you, you've got non the profit and loss shows your inflows and outflows for any profit and loss accounts, so revenue and expenses. But you can still have inflows and outflows that aren't related to the profit and loss. So a cash budget, which nobody has, that shows them all on one big report. So they show all of your line items from the P&L, and then they also show when you're paying down debt or you took on debt or you infused your own money into the comp- company or you took mm. owner draws and took money out. Mm. So a, a statement of cash flows, what it does, it's not quite as helpful, but it's the sort of standard report. What it does is it starts with, okay, during this period, this was your profit and loss, and then it reconciles it by adding in the the other, the, either the non-cash transactions like depreciation, backing those out, or accounting for the fact that you had debt that was paid, or you know the, the examples that we listed. So that's, mm. that gives you a snapshot of including every consideration. Here's what you started with, here's, and here's the activities, and here's what you ended with. So it, gives, right. it tells you what the, the variance was, and a little bit more details to why. Okay. So those are the main three things. So again, the formula here is meet with accountant, talk with them about your business, figure out any nuances that we can't cover in a generic call like we have right now, 
you know, then get set up a CEO, whether it's a C class or S, S suite or what or C, S class or an LLC or sole proprietorship, whatever you and the account determine is best. Get that set up, and then now get a bookkeeper and use some software and create these reports and look at these reports regularly. And again, like we said, treat it like a Sudoku. Like you don't even necessarily know what's going to jump out. But it, it's not going to jump out at you unless you're reviewing them. You have to sit and soak in the data right. and let the numbers just speak to you and see things and investigate. Some some of it's just looking at it and being like, how do these match up? Almost again like Sudoku. Oh, this number doesn't seem to make sense. Why doesn't that make sense? And then dive into that. That can that can uncover things like embezzlement or mismanaged funds or mismanaged parts mm-hmm. of the business. It's just, again, it's, it's one of those things where just like you would tell a child, like secrets are a bad thing, right? You're like... <laughs> discrepancies right. in any of these three reports can be a bad thing. It's a secret that you don't know about as the owner. And so that's this tool. This tool is like a flashlight for you to see and look into the activities of your business, kind of in the past, but still present because yesterday is still part of today to a certain extent. Right. So you can determine what's happening and where things are going. And that's that's why you want to do as much as you can to delegate Delegate as much as you can so you're calling the shots, analyzing the stats, and focused on growing the business, right? Focus Mm -hmm. on the business. Focus on driving the sales and marketing and making sure quality is keeping up with the influx of customers. And basically, that's where your seat needs to be as an owner, right? When you look up entrepreneur in the dictionary, it, it doesn't say person who turns on the lights, mops the floor, cleans the toilet, takes the orders, delivers the product, does the R&D to make sure we're relevant next month. It's like that's not what it says. It says a person who organizes a business or businesses. And I think that that means that as CEO, you need to delegate as much as you can so you're calling the shots, analyzing the stats, which include your P&L, your balance sheet, your cash flow statements, or cash budgets, as um, Mike has recommended here, and then focusing on the activities that are driving retention and new customer onboarding. Oh, yeah, absolutely, because when we're talking, when I talk about doing the books yourself and doing some of the stuff yourself, that's only when you can't afford to do otherwise. At the point when you can afford it, like you, just like you said, you should be offloading everything humanly possible that's not at the very core of your business and growing the business. And that's the failure to do that is why a big part of why so many businesses just stall after a couple of years. Yeah, I actually was just talking to a friend of mine who used to be CEO of a $100 million company, literally right before we got on this call. We started this interview a little bit late. And him and I, part of the conversation we were just having, he was excited about some stuff that was going on. He's not CEO of that company anymore. He's doing his own thing. Uh, but he was CEO, I think, for about three or five years of this $100 million company. And we were talking about how attention is the number one thing, how your sales success is directly proportionate to your number of contacts, which means that no matter what industry you're in, a resounding core principle is that X units times X price equals dollar amount. So if you're yeah. able to do a thousand in sales, a thousand sales at a thousand dollars equals a million. Okay. So maybe that's your starting point. But one of the things that you also have to recognize is that in this great plan of yours, we've now figured out a sales target, right? We need a thousand sales of this thousand dollar product or a hundred sales of this ten thousand dollar product or ten thousand sales of this $100 product. Okay, but now you have to figure out what's your sales method, what's your sales and marketing channel, what are these, and what's your cost per attention? Because if you're closing, let's just say, one out of 10 
on a $1,000 sale, whether that's over the phone, in face, at a conference, with a webinar, with a sales page, right? You're closing one out of 10, we'll say. Then you, have to, you can reverse engineer your goals, that if that's your sales goals, and I need 1,000 sales, and I'm closing one out of 10, then I need 10,000 sales yeah. meetings or interviews or whatever. And then how many people do I have to connect with to get those? And that you can't work your way around that math. You just can't. You just can't. Right. It's, it's like fuel in a rocket ship to get escape uh, gravity debt of the Earth, right? We, it just costs a certain amount of fuel and energy to get past that pole to stick to the surface of the Earth so you can go into outer space. And it's the same thing in sales. If your goals require you to have a thousand sales, then getting less attention, having less contacts than needed to for these numbers to flesh out. It's just no matter what you do, you're not going to get there. And I'm sorry if I went right. off tangent a little bit, but I think that that's no, no. I mean, it makes about. makes perfect yeah. sense, and that's why it's always. And again, this is why I work with high performers and people who are really doing well because they do, that's what they'll do. And you know, there's like you're saying, you can do things to to tweak it. You can do things to increase your conversion percentage and make it to where you have to do slightly less contacts and yeah. be more efficient. But ultimately, there's no getting around the core of you still have to make the contacts and grind it out. And right. that would be my frustration in, in the early days of the business when I was, you know, you're trying to survive so you're taking on any clients where some people, it was the same conversation every single year. How's business this year? Oh, not so great. Well, why not? There'd be this list of excuses, but it would be because they didn't have enough revenue coming in and they weren't willing to actually market themselves. They weren't actually willing to do true sales. Mm-hmm. So then it they had the same number of customers, same revenue, and nobody in that situation is really happy, but... That's the way a lot of people want to operate. Yeah, because a lot of people are just their hope is their strategy. They just they're hoping, right. exactly. hoping they're hoping that the timing is right. They're hoping the location they picked has got a lot of people that like it's that clarity of thought that's eluding a lot of people, and it's they're they're fully capable of it. But part of it is just we're sure. you know we're wired to want the immediate you know, instant gratification, and and thinking is tough. I mean, but as CEO, that's really mm-hmm. where it goes. So you gave a fantastic breakdown for how to go through this, how to get set up if you're not already set up. Let's say you are already set up and you are getting your P&L and your balancing cash flow. What are some of the biggest mistakes you see people making when they come to you? Like they've got this stuff going, they have a system, they've got a bookkeeper, they're reviewing them. Now what are some of the nuances? I'm trying to think just because it varies so much based on the industry and it's sort it's one of the things where it's a little more of a tactile feel for each person's situation. Well, let's flip it up to them. What are some of the habits and routines of some of your most successful clients when it comes to their accounting and bookkeeping and even their activities, day-to-day activities? They are fastidious and they they are anal with tracking their KPIs. Mm. That is is the biggest thing and a lot of them are marketers either by trade or just by nature. So 
they know the analytics on the front end and they're tracking those a lot. And then on the back end, we're, we're tracking a little bit more of the other stuff for them. But that's the difference across all of my clients and the ones who are successful or not are the ones who are actually trying and, and really paying attention. Because, you know, there's some cliche, I'm sure, I'm sure accountants came up with it, just being a little self-aggrandizing. But they talk about accounting being the language of business. Mm-hmm. And your money and your, your reports and the analytics that you have all around your business, that's telling you what's going on. So the people that I know who are super successful, who are able to make tweaks, who are able to adjust on a dime, or that see things are wrong, everything, they're the ones who are very, if not, not always even actively involved in the business. A lot of the very successful ones offload so much of the operation and they're just doing the, the most important things. But when you, what, um, what, what are they called in clockwork? He called it the, the queen bee role. They're only serving the queen bee role. But part of that is that they're paying extreme attention to the reports and all of their metrics because that allows them then to either change things themselves or give marching orders. The ones who stay the same, the ones who fail, the ones who, you know, just sort of get along, they're the ones that just either don't track it or refuse to pay any attention. Mm, mm, I love that. The queen bee role. I love that. It's a new term. I haven't heard that before, but it makes sense. Because as the, as the owner, you're the leader. And your business, I mean, for you, this is something that, I think this is a mindset thing that we're touching on here. Like, you have to understand the mindset has to be about serving. So a lot of people go into business because it's what they want to do with their days and it's what they want to do with their life and time. Mm-hmm. They want to make the money. But you have to understand that your business is a servant to the public and that your business is a servant as well to your staff and that all this kind of interplays. So that's why if it's all on you, you're, you might be the world's greatest, but how would you handle 10,000 customers? How would you handle 10,000 leads? How would you handle 10,000 refund requests? How would you handle 10,000 customers that are happily satisfied and want to buy more from you? Like this Mm -hmm. concept is like, you know, this is where now your business has staying power. You like one of the key things you said is before somebody gets to talking to you, they've mastered lead gen and initial sales at least. They may not be making the most of the customers they're getting, but they've got a consistent, steady flow of leads and a consistent, steady flow of sales of some sort on a regular basis. They've established it. It's like it's like they diverted from a beach and created a little river to this pond of their own, and that's they've got that established. They're not considering. They're not frustrated or confused about where their leads and sales are coming from, and that's a really key, important part. That kind of like you said. Right, but I think for a lot of people, if they didn't think about it, they would they, that would bypass them. They wouldn't recognize that for what it is. That the first step is mastering lead gen and sales, and having a predictable, steady flow of that. You know, at least maybe it might be seasonal, but again, having something where you know, yeah. hey, we're at, we're at a farmer's market, and we're set up there every Thursday, every Sunday, and we get these leads and these sales. And every Thursday, every Sunday, if the weather's good, we get these leads and sales. Now that's a repeatable, predictable thing. Okay, a lot of businesses have to get that. And online, it's where a lot of people get tripped up because they could be anywhere. They could be in a forum. They could do 
article marketing. They could do podcasts. They could do paid ads. There's so many things. They get all these shiny objects. It doesn't matter. But they've got something that works. Now they have these things yeah. that work. Now tracking is set up with key performance indicators, which means establishing benchmarks for things. So, again, farmer's market, Thursday, Sunday, we always show up. We always do about this much in sales. Those are the benchmarks. We always do this much in sales. We always do this much in sales. Now it's not so important for you to be there at the farmer's market selling stuff yourself as long as you can manage and trust the people you have there. It's just maintaining mm-hmm. those KPI because now you are establishing yourself in the role of queen bee role where at the farmer's market you're providing whatever to the community. You're providing a service. And just like if you go to McDonald's, you've never gone to a McDonald's drive-thru and they've been like, sorry, Timmy's sick, drive throughs closed. Like that doesn't, right. that doesn't happen. They've got people that in, interchangeable to just like parts in a machine to make sure this machine keeps running to serve the customers because, again, that's what a business is about. It's about serving people. One of the largest industries is food. People need to eat every day, usually three times a day. And that's a huge, right, it's a huge business, and that's where it's serving. You're feeding people. You're helping them get by in their busy day. You're taking care of the families. Like, it's a, it's a servitude thing. So I, I'm going to get off this horse, but I just feel like I just wanted to point that part out, that as business owners, if you're just doing everything that's all about you, you're not really taking it from the perspective of in your customer's best interest. And the problem no, might not- be partially because you think no one can do it as well as you, but that's, that's where you have to be smarter than that. You have to be the queen bee and figure out how yeah. do you replicate. Yeah, sorry. Well, no, I mean, you're 100% right because I – and I don't – I'll go back and forth as to what I think the biggest factor is. I think ego has to do a big is a big part of it that no one can do it like I can. I think thinking is more challenging. You know, doing things is easier. Just being the workhorse is easier. So as much as people might want to claim that they don't want to work as hard as they do, if you hire some help and then you are actually required then to think and to use your your time for mental exercises on how to tweak things, that I think is a little bit more stressful. But what I think there's a fear factor. Some people just don't want, they think of it as a risk, but that's the one that's funny to me because people stay solopreneurs or little micro-businesses because they don't want the risk of the staff and if things go down, that things can be bad. But they don't see the risks to their business and the customers if they get hit by a freaking truck. Uh If you have a medium-sized business, like your example of McDonald's, if you've got some sort of professional services firm and you've got five people even, who are reasonably interchangeable and there's two people at least who can do each task, your risk exposure is massively reduced. So it's funny to me because I think part of the reason people won't grow is that they don't want the risk of growing, but it's really just picking your poison. Which risk are you more okay with? Are you okay with you getting sick or something happening and the business just dissolving? Are you okay with having a higher overhead and needing to grow the business to offset that? Exactly it. So now, because I want to be respectful of your time, I want to ask, what are some of the most dangerous things that you think to look out for? Like, I don't know. It's almost like I'm asking for doomsday. But I like part of me wants to say, like, I feel like one of the biggest things is being audited. And, like, is there what's the damage control? 
in those, like, what are the biggest nightmare scenarios? And is there any tips for damage control for anybody? Like, these are when, you know, like, a lot of the stuff we talked about would be luxuries. Like, you know, like, it's a luxury to be able to sit down with accountants and set up and pick what, you know, what, what uh, structure your company. These are all luxury things because we're being proactive. What are the biggest urgencies in terms of being reactive? And what are the first things to worry about then? You know, like if somebody gets an email or a phone call or a letter in the mail and things have blown up, like, do you know what I mean? Like, is it, is it when the partners are dissolving a business or separating? Is it when taxes are come due? Is it when there's a death? Like, what are kind of, at least in your career so far, been the biggest kind of explosion points, I guess to say, where things become highly reactive? A lot of those things, they get more into the legal side of, of where things get really messy. Because we deal primarily with, we, we deal with those things, but we end up taking our marching orders or coordinating with the attorneys because the legal side sort of dictates what's going to happen. But you can, mm. and, and a lot of times what will happen is that there aren't contingencies set in place and the operating agreement isn't done properly. So you, there's no there's no exit strategy is what we'll run into a lot of times where a partner needs to be removed or there's a divorce and there's no real protection for the partnership interest or the the business interest and you even if it's just a one owner company you've got a wife or a husband whoever is not the owner of the business they're trying to you've got a super profitable business. And they're, during the divorce proceedings, if not trying to get part of the business from you, are trying to get a, val a pretty high percentage in valuation on that business. Mm -hmm. So then you've got you, you've to come up with, even if you get to keep the business, you've got to come up with the cash somewhere on, mm. on their half of it. That's so, not frightening at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so that's, that's another one where it's sort of an, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure is having those things set up. If you're a solo entrepreneur and let's say you're not married, so there's no chance of that happening, it would be a good idea to have some sort of key man insurance policy or some sort of contingency, even if it's with a competitor maybe. Each situation is different to where the business transfers over and just at least the client list transfers to someone else and your loved ones get some value on mm. the ability and, and the business and everyone's not left in the lurch where the records and the knowledge and everything just, just dies with you. And it sounds like this is kind of where the handoff and the, the collaboration between other professional experts and your business come into play. Like we said, this is where your accounting starts to play step into with legal matters. So this is where now you've set up the accounting, you've had the lectures, all this stuff, you maybe want to talk with your lawyer about some preventative measures, that way you can avoid those big things. And it sounds like then yeah, that really just and if they And if they do end up happening, you know, the lawyer is going to be at a divorce, a, a contentious partnership dispute, whatever, they're going to, the, the legal side is what dictates what's going to happen. And then from a tax side and a cash flow side, we try to mitigate the damage as much as we can financially, but we aren't the ones as much who are making the decisions on what's going to, what's going to happen right. on the, the pathway. We're just 
you know, right. the, the subset of the path is where we're, we're trying to find the least painful approach and coordinating right, right. with them to make sure that the pathway they think that is the best from a legal perspective isn't isn't on the whole more painful when you take into consideration the financial side. Mm, 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 mm. Yeah, so well said. If anybody's listening to this and wants to reach out to you for input and to take a look at their business, they've got an online business or maybe not. On, we know we specialize in online businesses. If somebody wants to get your help or have you take a look or set up a consultation with you or someone from your team, what are some of the best ways for them to reach out? Uh, best way would just be going to the website and that's frame OBA for online business accounting.com. If they're not an online business, the, the local firm, which is most my team works with that more, that's framecpa.com. And that's F-R-A-I-M, right? Yep, F-R-A-I-M. Right, F-R-A-I-M-C-P-A.com. And what was the other one? F-R-A-I-M. And O-B-A for online business accounting. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Micah, it's been an honor and pleasure. You came and given a ton of great value. I honestly think that for anybody, um, unless they're already deep into this, I think this is a fantastic place for people to be. Uh, this call, maybe we want to listen to it more than once because you really did give a good step-by-step -step system for people to follow and then for some things for them to consider. Even if they do have this stuff up, they're like, yeah, but I haven't looked at it. Or even if they do look at it, maybe it might give them a new, fresh pair of eyes to look at it. So I think this is a really valuable call. It's about one of the most important parts of a business once you get up and running, as we said, as the queen bee <laughs> of your business, as the, the leader, the CEO, your role is not to do everything. It's to delegate as much as you can so you're calling the shots, analyzing the stats, which include your finances as well as KPI for things like quality control and this sort of thing, you know, and drive the business for sales and growth and retention. So. I think this is what is a high-level call in terms of what people need to be focused on. I know I have lots of notes. Is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have asked you? I mean, we, we could go on this for hours. I'm sure we, the two of us, we could go <laughs> back and forth for a long time. So there's always something. But, no, I mean, I feel like that's pretty comprehensive for, especially on the starting outside, what people should yeah. be looking for. That's awesome. That's awesome. So for those of you that are interested in more information, go to frame, F-R-A-I-M-O-B-A.com or framecpa.com. Uh, again, Micah, thank you so much. It's been an honor and a pleasure, and thank you for coming and sharing with us and just, yeah, giving so much value. Yeah, man, thanks for having me. really enjoyed it. You've reached the end of our interview. Now, first, let me thank you for listening. I appreciate and respect you more than you'll ever know. And now I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. First, what three lessons did you just learn? What three aha moments just jumped out at you? Second, what can you implement for yourself and your business in the next 24 hours? Third, what can you give to someone else to help you with or give them to just do it for you? Whatever it is, remember taking action is the secret sauce to results. Now, if you think this interview would be helpful for a friend, please give them a link to it. It'll help them and it'll help me too. I'd also like to invite you to help me find out more about the challenges you're facing, your dreams, your goals, and how I can help you overcome what's holding you back. We both do better when we know better, and your success is my success. So please reach out and interact. You can visit our website, 
bestbusinesscoach.ca for Canada or California, where I'm from and where I'm living. You're welcome to also try out one of our paid programs. You can find us on YouTube, Facebook, and pretty much every other social media channel you can think of. You should also subscribe to the podcast. And if you're enjoying them, please leave us a nice review. It really helps. That's all for now. Once again, thank you. Take care of yourself. And remember, the world needs the best business you can build. And I believe in you.